0: The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. This is the word of the Lord, please be seated. No,
1: I don't need the stool. He's fine. Um, well, thanks, Ben, for reading and, and it's wonderful just the incredible team we have isn't it Is't it great that we have Reagan and Malia up here. Malia, by the way, this is our new uh, intern that's joined us from GCU for this semester, so yeah, we can cheer for her. she's not here, so that's great. Um, but it's just, it's so exciting as, as a worship pastor to be able to walk in, hear people leading the church with incredible skill and talent, with passion, and I'm not even a part of it. It's, it's wonderful to do that. Um, well, Frank is uh, celebrating his, I believe it's 30th anniversary. Is that right, Shelby? She doesn't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's celebrating an anniversary uh, with Jackie. I think it's a bigger one than normal. Uh, so he is gone, and uh, we're going to be continuing, as uh, Ben just uh, read, working through the book of Acts. And, but before we get to that, I kind of want to bring up uh, something that happened a few years ago. It's kind of a movement that's really infected our culture in a really, I, I, I would say, from an outside perspective, negative way. From inside perspective, I understand it. Uh, but it's, it's a serious issue that I, I feel like we need to address Head on, um, and that is the movement called the Dad Bod. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with the Dad Bod movement? Um, we'll all explain it in case you're not familiar with it. Um, the Dad Bod movement started a few years ago. I, I started seeing articles shared here and there, hashtags pop up on various uh, social media platforms, and basically, it was a group of dads, I believe, that were tired of this view of the human body as kind of perfection. They were tired of the six-pack and the eight-pack or anything in between, which I guess the seven-pack would be weird. But (laughs) they were kind of tired of this. They were tired of, of trying to live up to this standard. So they wanted to create a movement that justified their behavior. They wanted to create a movement that says, yes, I exercise, but I also like tacos. Yes, you know, I try to eat right, but I'm going to eat the kids' leftovers. Things like that. And it was a movement born out of this feeling of, basically, I can never live up to this standard, so therefore, I'm going to just change the rules of the game. Uh, If you can't beat the game, you just change the rules. And so the dad bod grew. And it went from, now you don't eat tacos, shamefully, but you eat tacos proudly, Because what's attractive is the dad bod. The rules have been changed. If you wonder why I know so much about the dad bod, it's because I joined the movement uh, a few years ago. This is is the critical moment in which it all happened. It all went downhill for me. I just stopped caring. Um, I was like, you know what? I don't want to get sunburned, so I'm just going to wear a shirt at the beach. I don't want to have to carry a bunch of bags, so I'm going to buy a fanny pack, and yes, I'm going to wear a sun hat. What's sad is that the fanny pack is probably the least offensive part of this picture. And another thing I just want to point out is uh, I'm not sure which is worse, the fact that I wore that to the beach or the fact that Tras Meso, Trello and 38 others, Tras Meso by the way is Stephanie's shoemate, that they liked this picture. I'm not sure which is worse. Um, and I think, I think Stephanie actually made the picture bigger somehow, so you can show that one. It kind of looks like a Thomas Kincaid photo. Um, <laughs> But anyways, we can take that down. This is weird. Um, the Dad DadBot is a movement that basically was born out of this reality. Yes, please take this picture down. <laughs> this reality that there's a standard that so many people felt like they just couldn't live up to. So instead of reacting shamefully or however we react, we just changed the rules of the game and justified our reality thus the dad bod was created. I bring that up not because we really need to understand the dad bod. It's a really weird and and silly movement that I think was really propagated just by dads. Um, But I think it's a really great insight into how we justify behavior. And that's what we're going to look at today. The the story that we're going to look like has three main characters, and all of them believe that what they're doing is right. All of them believe in their hearts that they are justified in how they are acting. And see, this is the reality of how we live our lives. Paul writes about it in in the beginning of Romans, that the law of God has been written on our hearts. So we enter into this world understanding that there is this standard of righteousness. Understanding that we are to live into God's standard of righteousness. But if we have lived for any period of time, we know that that is impossible. That we can't live into God's standard of righteousness and we are met with basically two options. We can either respond with hopelessness or we can develop a different narrative. We can come up with something that we can justify ourselves in, that we can make ourselves right in our own eyes in. I'm going to call these a self-justifying narrative. See, because the truth is, when we do things... Even if we know, kind of by the normal standards of things, that it's wrong, we rarely do things that we know are wrong and that we can't justify to ourselves. Deep down, how we act is very much so in line with what we believe. We act in a way that we justify. So, for example, uh, the, the person who, uh, you, you can take it from all, all extremes, uh, Uh, Divorce is oftentimes fits into this narrative. We know kind of holistically that divorce is not a good thing. But in our certain perspective, we say, well, happiness and my happiness, though, is the overarching narrative. So the collateral damage is okay. Uh, This is what we see in in a very extreme form through things like white supremacy or radical terrorism and things like that. What makes those things so dangerous is not because they're doing things that they know are wrong, but they're doing things that they believe are right. And this is the nature of human behavior. When we are doing things, we're ultimately doing things because deep down inside, we believe that they're right. And we don't believe that they're right because they fall in line with God's laws, because we have created a different standard. We've changed the rules. And everybody lives this way. Everybody has some deeper narrative that they're living into. Some deeper thing justifying why they do what they do. And it's important that we see this. And why I'm spending so much time in this is because it's going to be easy as we kind of walk through this passage to think that there is a clear good guy and that there are clear bad guys in this. But it's not that simple. And if all we do is recognize, for example, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leaders, as just bad guys doing bad things. Or the Romans as just bad guys doing bad things. Then we're going to miss the deeper dilemma that we're faced with. And how easy it is to slip into a self-justifying narrative. So, let's actually talk about the passage. And this is an extremely long passage that we're looking at. It's going to be Acts 22 30, through all the way through 24, 21, and because of that, I'm actually not going to read it. I want to encourage you guys to read this on your own. I'm going to summarize it, and then I'm going to come back to certain sections to talk about it. It would just take too long to read for our purposes here. Um, but basically, kind of, we, we read the first part. We heard the first part. Paul is now basically on trial. He's been brought into Roman custody, and Paul is going to be in Roman custody for the most part for the rest of the book of Acts. This is kind of the beginning of the end of Paul that we're studying. And he's brought then by the Romans before the Jewish council to kind of see, okay, what is it that the problem is? And he comes in there, he says, I've been justified in what I do, I, I, I live according to the law. Somebody hits him, he rightfully talks back, and then he realizes that he's talking back to the high priest, and he apologizes for it. Now Paul, as we've also seen, is an incredibly shrewd man. He is very wise. He recognized that there were both Pharisees and Sadducees present in this thing. So instead of even really fully making his defense, he just decides to turn them against one another. The Pharisees believe in angels. They believe in the resurrection. They actually have a theology of kind of afterlife and resurrection and stuff like that. The Sadducees were really more basically kind of kind of agnostic theists. They were traditionally Jewish but didn't really believe any of that stuff. So they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in visions. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So Paul stands up to say, I'm on trial here because of the resurrection of the dead, which ultimately turns the Pharisees and Sadducees against one another. It gets crazy, and the Roman tribunal brings them out. Jesus, ultimately, uh, kind of at the end of this, and we read this, will come to him and comfort him and say, You know, just as you're doing this here, I know this is scary, just as you're doing this here, you're going to do this in Rome and give some comfort in the midst of that. From there, there is a plot uh, kind of decided on to kill Paul. Uh, It says over 40, uh, basically, members of the Jewish party kind of hatched this plan. They're going to call Paul back, they're going to basically call the Roman tribunal in the morning, say, hey, Paul needs to come back, we need to finish this trial Yet on the way, they're going to be waiting in ambush for Paul to kill him. Now, Paul's sister, who's apparently, this is the only time we ever hear about her, Paul's sister is apparently in the area at the time. Paul's sister's son overhears this plot and warns Paul and warns the Roman tribunal. And that's what happens kind of through the the end of verse 22. After that, the Roman tribunal, this man named Claudius Lysias, in the middle of the night sends Paul with armored guard all the way to Caesarea, which is kind of where the the capital hub of that area is, so that he might stand trial and at least be put in protective custody under Felix. And he's doing that, and that kind of brings us to the end of chapter 23. And then in 24, he actually makes his defense before Felix. Felix is kind of the governor of the area. Uh, The the people from the, 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 the Sanhedrin, which is the name of the Jewish council that would put him on trial come and testify their side. Paul testifies his side. And then ultimately, he is actually kept in captivity with a lot of freedom in Caesarea for two years before he kind of goes on to his next journey. And kind of his defense is the same throughout it. He says, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. The same thing, the same kind of argument that's made at the beginning of chapter 22 is what's made in chapter 24. So that's the story. That's kind of the narrative we're looking at. But one thing we should ask is, as we're looking at these stories, there's really two stories that aren't told, two perspectives. Every story is told from somebody's perspective. In the book of Acts, it's told from the perspective of Luke, who's kind of shadowing and oftentimes alongside Paul. It's told really from the perspective of the losers. We talked about this at the book of Acts. When you look at this from a human perspective, the book of Acts is a story about a bunch of people who get killed. There's no happy ending for any of these characters that we're meeting. There's no happy ending for Paul, Peter, James, any of them. This is a story about a bunch of losers, told from the perspective of losers. But I want you to imagine with me what this story would sound like if it was told from the perspective of... Of the Sanhedrin. Because I think, once again, it's so easy to think that they're just bad guys doing bad things, regardless of their conscience. But the truth is, if this was told from their perspective, they would be the heroes. If this was told from their perspective, this would be a story of zealous, devoted followers trying to root out kind of this movement that's taking away their identity, that's threatening their land, that's threatening their heritage and tradition. This would be a story about people who, who, although they don't get their way at first, ultimately do get their way, because Paul ultimately is beheaded. And we know this, we know that they feel justified in doing this because of just a few indications. If you go back even two chapters in, in 21 verses 28, This is kind of when he's finally arrested in the temple. This is what the Jews are saying of him at the time. says, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man, speaking of Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which wasn't actually true. We see it later, even in this story, in 23.12, it says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. People don't do that unless they feel justified. That is not the actions of somebody just doing bad things for bad reasons. That is the actions of somebody doing what they believe is a deeply good thing. So they feel justified in it. And it's because they are living in a particular story. Theirs is a story that values history, blood, religious tradition over everything. They believe that salvation would ultimately be a geopolitical salvation, very much so in the name, in the vein of David and Solomon. So their deep underlying narrative basically says the most good is to have a, a pure Heritage is to have pure religion, have a pure people that are set in their one place, Jerusalem. And that outside of that, anything that threatens it, you're justified in doing bad things because it ultimately serves the deeper good. This is how they justified what they were doing, this is how they vindicated themselves. Like I said, this would be a story from their perspective. If if Ananias wrote this, for example, who's the high priest, this would be a story of incredible heroism by the Jews to snuff out somebody who's threatening everything that they believed in. They believed that what they were doing was right. They believed that what they were doing was justified. Now, this is a very common self-justifying narrative. I think of Bob Dylan, uh, who's one of my favorite philosophers and uh, theologians. Um, He wrote this song uh, called With God on Our Side. And it's basically looking at this issue where we kind of subvert God to serve our own ends, to justify terrible things that we do by saying, Well, I'm able to do it because God's on my side, because my religious tradition is on my side, my heritage, my zeal and love. For that tradition, that law, anything. That's what's motivating it. And he writes this in one of his verses. He says, Through many dark hours, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Powerful line, powerful thought. And I'm not justifying what Judas Iscariot did. But at the time, Judas Iscariot did justify what he did. This is the way it works. We fall into these self-justifying narratives. And what we're looking at today are two of many. But I think it's important that we understand how these things work. Because these are probably the most deceptive to the church. Because this is a narrative that shows up in the church. This idea of religious zeal. To tradition. What's funny, it's not funny, what's interesting is there is no mention of God by the Jews in this. What they are offended by was that he went against the law, he went against their tradition, he went against their blood, and he went against their land. Never once do they say that he went against their God. Now, maybe they assumed that, but it's interesting that that's not what they start with. But this is a narrative that shows up in the church all the time. Um, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote this book called The Brothers Karamazov. And in the midst of this book, there's kind of a parable that he tells called The Grand Inquisitor. And it's to basically talk about this very thing. Uh, Although the story takes place in uh, kind of 18th century or 19th century Russia, he basically tells this parable through 16th century Spain. Basically, Jesus shows up in some village in Spain in the 16th century and begins being Jesus. He begins teaching. He begins healing. He begins forgiving people's sins, modeling love and grace and mercy towards people. And in this story, a, a cardinal of the church shows up, a grand inquisitor. And he arrests Jesus and he puts him in jail. And he ultimately goes through this series of questions, accusing him of basically disturbing the peace that they've been able to withhold. And they ultimately say, what the Grand Inquisitor ultimately says, is that this thing that you're putting forth, this idea of grace, is way too dangerous for people. That if you want people to be happy, you need to control them through religion. Control them through kind of this idea of either moralism, or church membership, or dedication to these things. It was the same argument that we see put forth by the Pharisees. And he uses this as basically a way of talking about how this was not just unique back then. This is something that the church had fallen into at the time. Ultimately, uh, in the, the Grand Inquisitor, uh, Jesus is put on tial, trial and once again put to death. It's a really sad and powerful indictment of what had happened at the time to how people had turned something that was so good... And turn their back on it and replaced it with a, another narrative. A narrative that justifies themselves. So that's the story that justifies the Sanhedrin. It's the story of tradition and religious zeal, The story of, of purity of people, purity of race. The story of blood and soil that is justifying how they are doing what they are doing. And why they are doing what they are doing. Because what they are doing is terrible. They are lying, and they know that they're lying about Paul. They are lying about Paul so that he might be murdered. What they're doing is terrible, but they feel vindicated because they are so deeply enmeshed in this deeper narrative. Now let's look at it from the story, from the perspective of the Roman tribune. This could have been written another way as well. This could have been written from the perspective of Claudius, Or Felix. And once again, if you were to read that story, that version of it, I guarantee you the Romans would be the heroes. That what they're doing, they feel justified in it. They feel vindicated. If you look at Roman at Acts 23, verse 26 through 30, so this is the letter. That Claudius writes to Felix to be sent with Paul as Paul is fleeing in the middle of the night under Roman, uh, under Roman guard. It says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. What's interesting is we actually get a glimpse as to what the story would look like told from the Roman perspective. And if you notice, he is very definitely the hero of this story. He makes mention, but not by name, of Paul's A nephew that actually brings this stuff. It's him that saves. It's him that's keeping the peace. Now, it's easy maybe in the midst of this to think that the Romans actually don't look all that bad. The Romans are actually the people who are keeping Paul safe. If it wasn't for the Romans' presence there, Paul would have been killed by the Sanhedrin. It's easy to think that maybe they aren't just all that bad in the midst of the story, but you have to remember that it is not Jerusalem that executes Paul. It's Rome. What this will ultimately end is Paul's death, not by the hands of the Jews, but by the hands of the Romans. And so it's important that we understand what is it that's driving their behavior. Why do they feel justified in this? And when you understand Rome, there was an overarching principle of Rome that made Rome work. It was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was what they were deeply dedicated to. This was their narrative, the peace of Rome. Of Rome. And it sounds nice on the surface until you realize how they accomplished the peace of Rome. They accomplished this by basically everybody was scared to death that they were going to be killed. That's how they accomplished this. That at any day, any time, for whatever reason, if you threatened the peace of Rome, or if people perceived that you threatened the peace of Rome, they just wiped you out. You were just done. The Romans were brutal in that. So for them, the deep moral imperative, the deep moral prerogative of the Romans at the time was peacekeeping. It was to maintain the peace of Rome because they deeply believed in Rome. They loved Rome. They believed in Rome. That was their ultimate driving narrative. This was basically God himself came in emperor form to maintain peace, to bring all of these heathens and and barbarians into this civilized society, which is Rome. And anybody who threatened that reality was excluded and terminated. That was the narrative. That's what justified what they were doing. They didn't think twice when they executed Paul. They probably executed hundreds of people already that day. And when we look at it from our perspective, we're like, that's terrible. That's awful. But they felt justified in this. When people didn't fit into this Pax Romana, they were excluded. And that's what ultimately drove the Roman tribunal. That's what ultimately justified their behavior to themselves. Once again, it's a different narrative, but also a self-justifying narrative. And here's the thing. The way these work is that oftentimes takes something that in and of itself is not bad. That in and of itself is fine. And then it turns that into the ultimate thing. It turns that into the measure. And that measure is ultimately what justifies behavior. That's how we justify ourselves. We can't live up to the righteousness of God, so we change the rules and live into something we can. See, they couldn't live into the righteousness of God, but they could keep the peace of Rome. They could maintain that. And so they weren't justified by whether or not they could live into the righteousness of God. They were justified by whether or not they could keep the peace. This is, once again, a very common narrative. One that is widespread and one that creeps into the church. And I'm going to say something that... You might, uh, it might jar you a little bit, but once again, I'm talking not just about something that happens, but something that is turned into something ultimate. And what I see this at a macro level, probably the the most uh, likely correlative, is nationalism. It's the idea of nationalism. Now, the love of country is fine. It's good that we love country. But when that becomes the overarching driving narrative of what informs our decisions, that becomes a problem. This is a quote written by Jim Mullins, who's a pastor at Redemption Tempe. He writes this, he says, "'Nationalism is a false gospel. "'It's literally fake good news. "'At its core, it's a religious pattern of life "'that turns a very good thing, the nation, "'into an ultimate thing. "'It treats the nation as a God, "'making it the organizing principle of life "'and the object of supreme allegiance.'" Sadly, hordes of people are rejecting Jesus and converting to nationalism. Their denial of the faith isn't always a verbal confession. Sometimes they even deny the faith in the name of Jesus. They try to remake Jesus into the image of their idol and enlist him into the service of nationalism. It's something that happens so easily and quickly, but it happens even within the church. At a micro level, you'll see this. I see this a lot with parenting, and this is something that I fall into very easily with parenting. That's this idea that our job as parents is just to manage behavior. That law and order is the point. We want obedience. And you know what? With the right tactics, you can create an obedient home. It won't be pretty, but you can create an obedient home if that's your goal. Now, Raising kids in Christ with grace and love, sending them out is a much harder thing. But I see this a lot. I see this desire to just say, I just want order. I just want peace. And it will come at any cost. And what we find on, on even a micro level, this ultimately has really terrible results. Whether this with your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your friends, your family, your coworkers, or your kids if law and order is the driving narrative, behavior management is the driving narrative, you can maybe accomplish it for a while, but it ultimately is going to fail. But those are the two stories that we see here. And once again, these are not the only narratives. I couldn't list all of the self-justifying narratives that exist in this world. Everything can become a self-justifying narrative. Everything can become something that we turn into To distract ourselves from the reality that we can't live into God's standards. However, there is one other story being told. The actual story that's being told. And what I think it offers is a third option. It offers a third option. And this is the story from the perspective of the loser. And as it turns out, it's the only one that actually justifies people. It's the only one that actually works. Because just like we see that there is a narrative driving the Sanhedrin, just as we see that there is a narrative driving the Romans, there is a narrative driving Paul. Paul knows that this is ultimately going to lead to his death. And honestly, it would have been very easy for him to just avoid it. If he had just said what they wanted him to say. If he denied it, anything. Anything if he had not gone to Jerusalem in the first place. He could have avoided what will eventually come. He knows that this is driving him. Yet he is still driven. He feels vindicated in what he does. And we know that because he says it. In 23.1 it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He feels justified in what he has done. He goes on in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Later in 24-21 he says, Other than this thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. There is a narrative driving Paul, but we have to notice that there is something different about this one. Something different about this one than any other narrative that drives any other human behavior. What's different is that what's driving Paul is not self justification. He is not the one who justified himself, he is not the one who is resurrecting people. It is Christ. This is the story of Christ's justification. This is what's driving Paul. Paul is doing what he's doing because he is living out the good news narrative that is kind of played out in the scriptures. That yes, we are confronted with this deep reality that there is a standard set before us that we can never live up to. But instead of just either crumbling into despair or creating basically changing the rules of the game, Paul has chosen the third option. That's the option that Christ himself extends to us. That's that he will save us. That justification is not something that we can do. We can't justify ourselves. But Christ can. To put it uh, differently, and in light of what we were talking about earlier, uh, it's not the difference between the dad bod or the other bod. You can have the Christ bod, which is a weird way of putting that. And we shouldn't say that anymore. <laughs> but there is a third option. I actually was supposed to say the hashtag Christbod, which is worse. <laughs> and this narrative becomes a problem. This reality that Paul is not there because he is justifying himself, he's not there because he's living up to some standard that he has set for himself. He's not there because he's trying to protect heritage or tradition. He's not there because he's living into the moral imperative of the Pax Romana. He's there because Christ saved him. He's there because Christ redeemed him. He, who was once an enemy of God, living that enemy reality out out of zeal for what he thought was important, and Christ stopped him, and he saved him, and he redeemed him, and he brought him into his mercy and into his love, and into his grace, and into his power. That's what happened to Paul. The reason why Paul does stuff is not because he did something for himself, because somebody else did something for him. And if you realize how that shapes Paul, you realize the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. But this is a problem. See, the the Pax Romana and, and kind of the... the, the Adherence to Jewish traditional law, for the most part, can coexist as long as they kind of stay in their lanes. This doesn't coexist with those narratives. The good news of Jesus, just—it it, it is a cancer to those narratives. This idea of piety and purity justifying them. The reality of Christ's salvation just levels it. This idea that we are saved kind of through our deep commitment to love of country, it levels it. The true nature of the gospel narrative points out the foolishness of self-justification. And because it points out the foolishness, it is always met with opposition. And that's what we're seeing here. It's a problem to all other narratives because it exposes its folly. It exposes the folly that we believe that just because we change the rules, we can justify ourselves. It exposes that reality and it makes us confront something. We are either going to live in the lie and self-deception that we can justify ourselves or we are going to admit that we can't and allow Christ to justify us for us. That's what it ultimately does. He is pushing this question onto people. And that's why he's met with such vehement opposition. In Victor Hugo's great novel, uh, Les Miserables, he, he juxtaposes two different characters, and I think they are a great example of this reality. And that, there's the man, Jean Valjean, who is, who's the predominant character, who is basically this criminal who spent most of his life in jail, gets out, uh, stays at this priest's house, steals these candlesticks, as a way to kind of make money, gets caught, knows he's going back to jail, and instead this priest grants him mercy and says, no, he didn't take these candlesticks, I actually gave these to him, and you forgot this other stuff. And it completely changes this man's life. This is a character who is living out of this narrative that he is not the one who justified himself, he is not the one who saved him, but somebody else did. And that shapes and changes it. Then you have this character named Javert, who is basically the, the police officer put in charge of kind of tracking this man down. Or he actually he kind of puts himself in charge of him because Jean Valjean is an enigma to Javert. Javert believes in the rule of law. Javert believes you are justified by how well you adhere to the rule of law. He is a very moral man, although he is a terrible man as well. And ultimately, it comes to head that Jean Valjean, he's put in a position where Jean Valjean could have actually killed Javert. And instead, he he saves Javert's life. And to him, it's devastating. And Javert ultimately takes his own life because he can't deal with the reality of somebody else justifying him. He was so driven by this reality. We have to ask the really hard question of what narrative is justifying our behavior. What is it that drives us to do what we do? What is it that tells us that what we're doing is okay? Here's a good indicator of whether or not what you're living out is either a self justifying narrative or living out of the gospel. See, because what self justification manifests in is self protection and exclusion. It doesn't matter what the narrative is, it always manifests in self protection and exclusion. Those become the predominant things that you are occupied with. It's how do you preserve yourself and all the things that you have, and how do you protect it from anybody who could take those things away from you? That is the outgrowth of a self-justifying narrative. That is the outgrowth of another way of putting it, idolatry, that we are worshiping something other than God in order to justify ourselves. That's all idolatry is, As we can't, Find our way to approach the real God so we create a fake God that we can't approach. And it always manifests in exclusion and self-protection. Whereas with Christ, it manifests in merciful inclusion and grace. It manifests through mercy, through forgiveness. One is self-focused, the other is focused on others. One ends in destruction and one ends in life. So we have to ask the question, what narrative is driving you this morning? For some of you, this is the first time you've been confronted with this, and you might feel a little agitated. I understand that. We are all not, we are all, yes, we are perpetrators of sin, but we are all victims of the brokenness of this world. So I understand the desire to justify yourself. I understand that, but I'm asking you to re examine that reality in light of the good news of Jesus. That there really is only one way that you're justified. And it's not through living out some other narrative, it's not through serving some other God, it's not through being committed to this thing or that thing, it's through Christ. There's only one thing that can save you. So if you here this morning have never heard that before, I ask you to consider it. Consider this, the justification of Christ that it is not you who make you righteous, but Christ. Now you might be here and that's something that you have done and you believe that. Once again, examine your hearts. This is something that I have to examine all the time because the ability to slip back into this behavior is so subtle and so deceptive and so quick that we will begin, although we have been saved and justified by Christ, we begin to once again justify ourselves through other means. And this can be a lot of different things. It could be some of the things we talked about today. It could be a whole host of other things. But I would ask you to examine yourself and turn once again back to the only one who justifies you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, as we are confronted with this reality, as, as we are confronted, God, with the hard truth, but the good truth that it is you who saves us and not us, Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately. Lord, I pray that we would respond, God, by accepting your mercy. Lord, I pray that we would respond by accepting the reality of your forgiveness. God, convict us of our sin. Lord, make make your salvation so sweet to us right now that you can't resist, that we can't resist you. Lord, the, the burden being lifted of trying to justify ourselves. God, free us from that. Save us from that. God, set us free from the weight of our own idols. Lord, and bring us into the freedom that we have in you. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for pursuing that. We thank you for taking the initiative to redeem us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we turn to you now in praise. this in your name. Amen.